This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 28, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Drones are just one way that governments can surveil citizens, and so far, an alarming amount of suspicionless surveillance has occurred without a warrant. Jay Stanley is with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. We spoke yesterday. What is the current state of law with respect to drones at uh, state and federal level? So it's a little bit of a wild west, um, but there are, have been a number of states that have passed um, drone regulations, most targeted at law enforcement, most involving warrant requirements. Um, there have been some that have targeted the private use of drones. Um, we regard those mostly as unfortunate. They, they have uh, First Amendment implications in terms of being regulations of, the, of photography that are not based on safety regulation of where you can fly a drone. Um, and um, at the federal level, there are some, uh, there was a memorandum that the president circulated uh, requiring transparency by federal agencies. Um, but there's no real federal drone law other than, of course, the mass of FAA um, safety regulations. What have states done? Uh, like you mentioned that several states have passed regulations specifically targeting law enforcement and warrant requirements. What do many of those or most of those have in common about how they restrict police use of drones? They basically restrict the police from using drones for surveillance without a warrant. Um, most of them have exceptions for emergencies, for things like you know, search and rescue. Some of them have exceptions for things like um, you know, uh, forensic uses, crime scene and accident scene photography. Um, but um, you know, that's basically the common thread that, that, that runs through most of them. The Supreme Court decided U.S. v. Jones a while back. Uh, you mentioned it in your talk. What are the implications for the use of drones uh, from that case? So, I mean, of course, one of the big looming questions about drones is whether they will evolve into tools for mass surveillance, watching and tracking everybody all the time from when they leave their front door until they get home at night. Um, and one of the big questions there is whether the Fourth Amendment will have anything to say about that, whether we have a, any kind of expectation of privacy when we're outside of our homes in public spaces. Um, a lot of people just glibly say, well, you're in public, you have no expectation of privacy. But as a matter of fact, most people do expect privacy in certain ways when they're in public. They don't think that somebody is going to follow them around 24-7 throughout their day. Um, uh, and yet that's now technologically possible and indeed becoming cheap to do. Um, the Supreme Court sort of dipped its toes into this issue in considering this case, U.S. v. Jones, in which law enforcement attached a GPS tracker to a guy's car and tracked him around for 28 days without a warrant. Um, and the case went up to the Supreme Court. The government said, well, he was in public, no expectation of privacy. Um, why should we need a warrant? We could have tracked him you know, with, a, with a team of 12 agents uh, around the clock. Um, this was the government's argument. This was the government's argument. Of course, that's extremely expensive, um, whereas a GPS costs $150. You slap it underneath a car, and you can accomplish the same thing. Um, and the Supreme Court, in a, in a very complex, divided set of decisions, basically said, no, it is a search when you put a GPS on a, a car. And a majority of the justices you know, said that um, it, it's different when you're tracking somebody over an extended length of time than when you're a police officer and you're standing on a corner and you see somebody driving on that corner 
at a point in time. So, you know, this is a question where quantity changes quality. Um, and there are other Supreme Court um, rulings about aerial photography where the Supreme Court has basically said you have no expectation of privacy from, from being observed from the air. But, but those involved sort of fixed-wing aircraft, um, you know, taking photographs from the air. And they didn't really contemplate somebody being watched from the air for hours and days and weeks upon end, which is now, again, technologically possible. A device that can hover directly over your fenced-in backyard. Yeah. And this for is, long periods of time. Yeah. And if you're talking about the government doing it, um, you know, that's, the, that's where the Fourth Amendment question is. And there have been some, you know, cases already about the government fixing cameras to poles pointed at somebody's front door um, and things like that. And it's, it's still a greatly unresolved area of law. And it's not something that, you know, we, in our history we've had to really answer before, but the technology has raised the question and we're going to have to figure out an answer. Um, so, uh, you know, of course, there's a bunch of other issues when it's a private party doing that. Let's say I want to hover a drone over my own backyard for some reason, 24 hours a day for weeks on end, but it also is going to record your backyard. You know, you can imagine the lawsuits that are going to happen in that area. When you mention uh, the this distinction between government making use of drones for gathering some kind of information and private parties uh, doing essentially the same thing without regulation, you mentioned uh, that you had to talk to some local law enforcement to actually explain that distinction. What can you explain? What that distinction is? You mean between government and private parties doing sure. the same thing? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, first of all, there's the Fourth Amendment, which regulates uh, government in a way that does not regulate private parties. Um, and there's the First Amendment, which protects private parties in the way it does not protect the government. Um, and you know, we at the ACLU, we're a photographer's rights organization, among other things. We've been defending the rights of people to take photographs of police and, and bridges and tunnels, uh, all things that have been challenged frequently by um, by police and security guards. Um, and so if you, as a photographer, want to take pictures from a drone, the First Amendment is implicated by that. Um, there may be serious reasons to put in place regulations for, for safety, obviously, for where, where and when and how drones can, can fly. But there may also be reasons compelling government interests to protect privacy. Um, but the First Amendment has something to say about that. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have not actually called for a regulation of private sector drones at this time. We, we might be open to it in the future if it becomes apparent that there are big privacy problems where a regulatory solution could come into play. But there, we also have to, it's unclear what those privacy problems are going to be that aren't already co covered by existing laws such as peeping Tom statutes, which exist in almost every state, um, harassment statutes. Um, trespassing laws. It's, it's very unclear how existing laws are going to apply to this technology. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to curb, in, curb innovation. Um, and, um, and so we're taking a wait and see approach in terms of um, proposing or, or, or supporting any kind of uh, uh, regulation of private sector drones. And of course, there's the First Amendment there, which is huge for us as well. Baltimore has already engaged in wide area surveillance of specific neighborhoods uh, in its city. Uh, where does that case stand? Uh, where does that issue stand? And to what extent have they made use of that data uh, for possibly other purposes? So, um, so yeah, this is a company out of Ohio that has been trying to 
sell American police departments on hiring them to fly Cessnas in circles over their cities and use uh, gigapixel camera technology and computers to basically track the movements of any vehicle or pedestrian within a 25-square-mile area for you know, eight-hour shifts, 10-hour shifts at a time. Let's start with gigapixel. What does that mean? It means just very, basically a very, very high-resolution camera that can um, capture many billions of pixels. Um, and the ability of camera sensors to get more and more powerful and to see more and more detail is growing uh, exponentially akin to Moore's law. Um, and so that is something that uh, um, you know, we're going to see continued improvement or, or, or increases in power on, and that will have privacy implications. But um, you know, it doesn't show a lot of detail of the cars and pedestrians that it's tracking, but you don't really need a lot of detail to know who somebody is if the dot starts at 123 Main Street and, and, and moves around and then goes to 256 Elm Street. Um, you can still get a lot of information even if you can't see anything about the person's face or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, that to watch an entire city in that way and to be able to log all everybody's movements is a very, very powerful thing for the government to be doing. Um, and we need to ask very sharp questions about whether we want to go down that road. Will it solve some crimes? There's no doubt that it will. Um, but it, it's, it's a collect-it-all on everybody approach to law enforcement that in many ways is, is parallel to what the NSA has been doing in the communication space. So just collect everything that everybody says um, and save it just in case we need it. And here it's let's collect everything on them where everybody goes just in case we need it. Um, and that's a huge power to give to, the law, to, to, to government. It has a huge potential for abuse. It has a huge potential to create chilling effects, to change the relationship between the individual and their government. Um, and so at a very minimum, we need total transparency about these kind of programs. And, and we live in a democracy. And, and ultimately, these need to be democratically decided. What we saw in Baltimore was they didn't tell, let alone ask, the populations that they're serving whether they wanted the police to have this power. Related to that, um, how does this kind of surveillance like in Baltimore and uh, that presumably other cities might like to get involved in, how does that change the presumption of innocence? I think that, um, number one, our, our heritage, our tradition has always been that the government doesn't look over your shoulder, doesn't watch what you're doing, and, and try and assess whether what you're doing is suspicious or not, unless it has particularized suspicion that you have been involved in wrongdoing. Um, doesn't watch everything that everybody does all the time. Um, and, and that is a, a real change. It's, it's a fundamental change in the Anglo-American legal tradition and relationship between government and the individual. Um, and it's brought about just by technology. It's not like everybody suddenly decided they wanted this change. It's just become possible, and government is plowing ahead with doing it. Um, and it also changes the presumption of innocence in that um, I think that there are a lot of um, – there are a lot of crimes on the books. There are a lot of laws on the books. And if you know everything that everybody is doing, you can probably find something 
that any given individual has done wrong that you can charge them with if you decide that you want to go after them for some political reason or what have you. Which gives the government a great deal of discretion in dealing with people who might be troublesome. It gives the government a huge lever of power over the citizens that are supposed to be having power over the government, not the other way around. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Barry, uh, you know, Stalin's henchman who said, you know, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. And there's a lot of truth to that in a very complex society with lots of, of laws on the books. Um, you know, owning certain types of leather from South America from, from endangered species is, you know, is a crime. And, you know, are you sure your wallet isn't made out of that leather? Um, uh, you know, and so, um, uh, you know, I think that that's one of the big issues with, with, with not only aerial surveillance but any kind of um, mass surveillance that's not based on individualized suspicion. There are some issues that folks here at Cato like to argue about and uh, try to make these points as often as possible. But I want to get your perspective on two things. One is the third party doctrine, this idea that you don't have a privacy interest in things that you have allowed someone else to see or have given a certain amount of information uh, to someone else, like the phone company is the classic uh, example. And combined with that, this idea of what actually constitutes a reasonable expectation of privacy, which is also a problematic legal standard. Yeah. I mean, those are the, some ways the two big issues in privacy. And the third-party doctrine originated um, in, a, in an overall good Supreme Court decision called Katz in 1967 in an almost offhand comment, which said you do have a reasonable expectation of privacy, although sort of obviously if you're you know, out on the streets and you're talking loudly and somebody overhears you and you, know, you don't have any reasonable expectation of privacy for that, things you share willingly with others, you, know, you don't have an expectation of privacy for. And at some level, that's a common sense observation, but that grew throughout the jurisprudence to this idea that um, you know, things you share in automated data that you share in an automated fashion with, with companies um, is equivalent to as if you'd shouted it out on the street. Um, and that makes no sense. And with the evolution of technology, it makes today even less sense um, in the sense that, you know, you know, Thomas Jefferson did all of his business in his library and wrote his letters in his library and stored them in his library and probably saw his doctor in his library. And, um, and today, a lot of those activities are done through international corporations. And our correspondence sits on the servers of international corporations. And so the idea that we, you know, that that's the equivalent of shouting out on the street and we give up an equivalent level of privacy for those just doesn't make any sense. Um, and in terms of the question of reasonable expectation of privacy, um, the problem there, of course, is that it's circular. Um, you get privacy when you are reasonable in expecting privacy. I mean, that implies that if the FBI took out billboard ads and said, we're going to start invading your privacy in this way and that way, you can no longer expect it. We're warning you now that, that the Supreme Court should have nothing to say about it. it, should, it should say, the language should be something like a reasonable desire for privacy. Um, and so the problem is, is that the circularity there abandons any substantive judgment about what kind of privacy it makes sense to protect for people uh, living as democratic citizens in the modern world. Jay Stanley is with the American Civil Liberties Union's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.